Hey, this is Joe, host of the Game Changers podcast. If you like what you hear, I want to ask you for a quick favor. Just share it with somebody. Share this episode with a friend and follow us on Spotify. I look forward to connecting with you. On this special two-part series of the Game Changers podcast, we have Nida Montes. Nida is a PhD student at Temple University's Department of Geography and Urban Studies with interest in environmental justice, community development, and health. She has led initiatives relating to housing, gentrification, zoning, and neighborhood stability. She's worked with young people promoting educational advancements in our community. She's also traveled a bit, not just working in communities in North Philadelphia, but she's traveled to Equinorial Guinea, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. She's a proud North Philadelphian. How are we at the bottom of the barrel and we have the greatest guy? Talk about women in general? Women in general, you know, or in our religious settings, people talk a lot about like, I want to be in ministry and I want to, you're in the four walls of a church, right? But in society, like, how are we not pursuing things that are greater? Like, how are we not pursuing education? How are we not putting ourselves in places where we're needed? There's this like spiritual aspect to it, but then there's also this, you know, like socially looking at it from a social perspective. Yes, we are people of color. Yes, we are, you know, many of us are, are religious folks. Yes, many of us come from poverty. But at the same time, if you claim to have a great God, why are you not pursuing great things? I don't get it. Or why do we sit back and say, well, I'm going to let a system take care of me when you don't know, like, what's going to happen to the government? Like, when you don't know what will happen. Like, why are we so young giving up on ourselves? Mm. I don't get it. I remember when, when the whole food stamp situation happened, what, months ago? That was like, the government is not giving food stamps, and people are like freaking out. Oh, after the government shut down. All right. Yeah, this is what I've been saying. You cannot put your life and your family's life depending on the government. You can't. I think there was a, a social system that was created to support people and to, to help them move along. And I think it's really important. But for us to say, you know, I'm just going to take the easy way out. At the end of the day, you're going to be struggling the rest of your life. And then what do you create for your children? So we have generations of people that are okay living in poverty and okay, you know, having mediocre jobs and okay, like not getting what they're worth or not living up to their potential. It's like people tell me, oh, you're still in school? You know, how many years have you been in school? Or people ask or wonder, like, what you're doing. And it's kind of like, I may take four years in school, but you'll be working that same, you know, $10 job for 20 years, and you're okay with that. But I'm investing in myself for four years, five years, to make a greater pay and to be able to sustain a family and to be able to grow as an individual and, as a, you know, as a person in a community. But people don't see it that way because people want instant gratification, mm. instant satisfaction. Or the fact that because we create these cycles of sort of poverty, we have to live on a, like an emergency basis all the time. Like I can't go to school because I just had a kid 
and I have to go to work because I have to sustain my kid, but my relationship doesn't work because I jumped into a relationship and now we're broken up and now I'm a single mother, I'm a, now I'm a single father and I have to take care of my family and it's a cycle. So it's like now I can't go to school because who's going to take care of my kids or I need to work because I'm about to be homeless. So we're on survival mode constantly. Like many of the families in our community don't have a, a support system. That equity that many other people have you know, it's kind of like, okay, I can go to school and I can do whatever because I know my parents are paying for my tuition or my parents, if anything happens, I could go to them or they have whatever fund for me or they have a surplus of money. Many of our communities don't have that. So we're living in a cycle of survival constantly. And if someone doesn't break it, then our kids are gonna do it and the kids' kids are gonna do it and we're always struggling. So how do we get to even those positions, like I work with city departments, I have worked with people, you know, in, in government agencies, and it's kind of like, it is so hard many times to find people of color to fill positions or to find people that are trained and skilled and, and adequate enough to work in certain places. Why? Because we are, we're not pursuing certain things. You, one of the things that I find interesting is, and I've worked a nonprofit for a long time, and and I don't want to question people's intentions, but I think there's I think you bring a good point. I, I've worked in nonprofits where people who I don't normally relate to are the ones leading it. They're leading the departments. They're leading the organizations, and they have good hearts. I don't want to uh, belittle or come off as if like. I'm hating or anything, but but it's good to see people that are from your background leading those departments, leading those, leading these organizations. Um, but it seems like the cycle, even within our neighborhoods, right? Those people that are leading these organizations in our neighborhood that's supposed to be a support system don't even live in our neighborhood. They have the luxury of uh, they have the luxury of having the resources to live out in Roxboro, to live out in the burbs, to live out Sheltonham, South Philly, Center City, but then they just come to work in the hood for eight hours a day. And I wanted, I wanted to. It's just I'm adding on to like I, I want to see more of our people who live in our neighborhood be the ones who help each other out. I don't know. Do you feel where I'm coming from? Absolutely. My focus is not so much on the, like, hey, I like trees, yeah. you know, I like the burbs, I like, you know, everybody is, is trying to to get a better quality right. of life. When I think of, like, moving to a certain area, I'm thinking more so of the quality of life because I've experienced what it is to be in a place where I don't have to really worry about the streetscape, whether, you know, I have access to a grocery store, I can buy vegetables where I want. I don't, I don't have to go to a post office with bulletproof glass. I don't have to go to a bank with bulletproof glass. I don't have to be in a neighborhood where they are policing constantly. I can be in a place where there's greenery, where I feel like the air is, is cleaner, the quality of life is better. So everybody wants to pursue that, if you're aware that, that that's, an, that's an option. Um, but more so is that there's people that are working in these communities that are, are not just away from the like away from the community but don't have the experience to really understand 
or to empathize with the needs of a community. And that's the bigger, that's the greater thing. You know, there's people that are working to move out of the, out of the communities because they don't get any better. But at the same time, we have to understand that there, we are filling positions with people that have gotten education and sometimes they may not have the best experience, mm -hmm. but what counts is what's on paper. And unfortunately, that's the truth. Right. When I started working at my the last nonprofit, um, not at Temple, at the nonprofit before then, I had a master's degree and I started as a community connector working with high school students making $11 an hour. Mm -hmm. And I worked my way up until I was in a coordinator position. So there's sometimes humility that comes with that because we don't necessarily always have like this connection or that connection that'll say, hey, hire her and do this. I kind of had to prove myself. You know, I, I remember like applying for certain things and, you know, not really getting a response and then going, going to a speaking engagement and everybody wants my number because you heard me open my mouth. Mm -hmm. But I had to prove myself, you know, before when I was a nobody, you know, you're never a nobody, but there are, we don't always- For the reputation that came about. Yeah, I, gu I guess before people can really understand the potential that you have. Mm -hmm. You know, they may see you on paper, they may not see that you have as much experience or you don't have connections, so-and-so didn't recommend you, blah, blah, blah. So you're working your way up and that's okay. I knowing that I really, really like started knocking on doors. Like when I talk about grassroots, I mean like community engagement, mm. knocking on doors, freezing cold, dropping off flyers, doing surveys on the ground with a master's degree. And I don't regret it, not one bit. Mm. I am so grateful for that opportunity and to be able to work in a team, you know, to, to grow that mentality of like, even when you are in leadership, you have a team behind you and it's that team that is what is, is really making the money moves. It's not just you. And I learned that. And, and part of the issue that we have with the leaders that are working in, in nonprofits is that they're so disconnected. And mm. I have this paper, I have this degree, so I didn't have to do as much groundwork. So I'm here and now I'm in leadership and I'm disconnected from my team members, and I'm disconnected from the people that I work under me, and I'm disconnected from everything because I have the paper, but I don't have the experience. Wow. So even though I had the paper, I had to go get the experience. And now that I'm in academia, a lot of the theoretical uh, frameworks of, of things that I'm learning, I learned on the ground. Mm. So I'm reading it from a different perspective, and I'm learning about these things from a different dynamic, and hopefully, the idea is to be able to, to connect academia one day with what I've learned on the ground with community engagement and be able to, to do something that can be practical and that can actually help people that are working on the ground. Because my, my, my passion has always been there more so. Like, I, like academia is, is, is great and all, but I'm, a, I'm really a practitioner at heart, so. So I agree, but there's so many reasons why leadership that comes from the outside and lives from the outside and are people that don't look like people in our neighborhood or have those experiences, there's a reason why they're on there. And we have to realize 
if you want to be able to function or operate in certain spaces, you need to know the language. You need to know how to code switch. You need to know, you know, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. You have to, to know how to assert yourself and be comfortable even when you're one in a bunch. Because I've found myself in that position so many times. It's kind of but, like, I'm an outlier here. But how did, all right, so you are, you're a woman that grew up just around the corner from Six and Allegheny, North Philly. How did you gain those values? I thank my parents a lot for being there. I think we belittle how much parenting and faith and moral values. We, we kind of nowadays, it's kind of like we, we devalue a lot of the most important things. Mm. When I started working at the Center for Bioethics um, at Temple University School of Medicine, they talked a lot about zip codes and how zip codes determine more your health outcomes than even your genetics. So people that are found in certain zip codes, like Six and Allegheny, you know, you know, if you fall within that area, you have a higher chance of having all of the health disparities, the, you know, mm. a lot of the diabetes and high blood pressure and stressors and blah, blah, blah. And that goes on. So even though, like, I'm, I'm working at this institution, statistically, where I come from and where my family comes from, we have more, like, a higher prevalence of getting all of, all, all of the negative outcomes. And part of the conversation that I, ha I have had with colleagues is the fact that, yes, I come from this family. I come from this community, but there was something different. There was a social structure within my family, something that my parents did, that my mother was there. I saw my mother, after having six kids, working around a church, helping to take care of grandparents, taking on a foster kid and every, all the other attachments that came along with that. And she finished her master's degree. She went back to school, wow. you know, and my father was there. You know, she had to go to school. I wasn't left, you know, with a neighbor, whatever. I had a father and he was there. And those, those moral values, you know, there's still things that I don't do today because my father is alive. You know, there, there's things because I, I, I appreciate the values and morals that they had, but he was also very present. He would also take us to school. He would also bring us back if we needed to. They didn't have the money to pay for college, but I knew that when I wanted to take those summer college classes in high school, my father would be willing to dish out, no questions asked, to pay for that. And not dish out for the... Uh the Black Friday TV. They ain't worried about that. That's no, what I'm actually, when we sometimes grew up, we go through that. It's right? nonsense. Yeah. Oh, I don't have money to pay for your three credit class that's on discount at CCP. That's like four hundred dollars, but I can buy a new TV every year that's like five six hundred dollars. Okay, or, where or I need priorities? the latest iPhone. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I actually, when we grew up, I remember knowing that on Christmas, if they had it, they had it. If they didn't, they didn't. And what was important was that we were all together right. as a family. Whenever they got the money to be able to buy us whatever it was that we wanted, then we'll get it. It doesn't matter if what you know, whatever month it is. But we knew that like the whole gift giving, oh, you want sneakers? You can go work. You mm -hmm. want two hundred, three hundred dollars sneakers? All right, go work. Because parents, you know, my dad always jokes, 
All right, you're gonna boil those sneakers and make the tea so that they can eat those sneakers when you, you know, or make the food so they can eat the sneakers when you don't have any income because you're, you're splurging money on things that are not necessary, mm. just for name brand. What's your priority? So we grew up in, in, in that way. We had a high standard of, of morals, a high presence of parenting, and what my parents made within the household was fighting against the social pressures from where we lived. So when my brothers decided that they wanted to start getting involved in the street, you never know when Pops was gonna come out of the, the alley or something and find you, or you know, being very um, involved in his faith you know, I grew up saying, oh, daddy ain't gonna find me in his dreams. No, he not gonna have no visions about me. The spirit is not gonna tell him anything about <laughs> me because Nida is not getting in trouble because I will not be up in my father's dreams. No, thank you. The spirit has nothing to tell him about me because I'm not getting in trouble because I grew up with the, uh, you know, my father would, you know, hearing the stories of my father saying, hey, to my brothers, oh, I know you're, planning this and this and this, or you want to do this and this and this, and the spirit told me, and he was right. And he was right, absolutely. So I said, not me, not me. So that sort of kept me on this straight and narrow for a while, besides the fact that my father was present. But there was, you know, my parents were fighting social battles and spiritual battles and financial battles and, and all type of those things, but they were fighting that unified and what they created inside was able to fight the social. So even though statistically, my family shouldn't look the way it does, we're sort of outliers. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, obviously, I thank God for that, but I also thank my parents for that. You know, being willing to say, no, I'm not your friend. And no, you can't do whatever you want up in this house. And no, I don't care how old you are, you are, yeah. You know, you're still doing what you have to do, and school is not an option. You are going to school. Yeah. You will go to school as if that is your job. And currently, there's six of us, and five of us have bachelor's degrees. And for males, for that many males to mm. have degrees is not normal in itself. And my other brother has like three certifications in trade schools and ironically he makes more than all of us but mm. um yeah they're all educated they all did something with their life yeah. and i think that's really important that what you invest in your children is more important than anything material that you can you know that you can gain I remember i was i was laid off in the beginning of the year and before then, I was I had just gotten approved for a mortgage, like for a loan, a house mm -hmm. loan, and I was looking for houses and everything. And after everything had had happened last year, and I got laid off in the beginning of the year, I was like, "All right, God, if you're trying to tell me something, this is like too much." I'm like, "The wake up call." If if you're trying to move things, what are, I'm here, whatever, like. It's fine. 
So even though I had the hope, oh, okay, I'm going to get a house and blah, 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 I was like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. What I want is peace. Because after going through like every everything that I, I went through and, and the grieving of my life that I, I had gone through, it's like there is nothing more valuable than peace. You know, and, and, and I've, I've traveled the world. You know, I've seen like real extreme poverty and it's kind of like, I pretty much have everything that I need. I may not have this expensive luxury. If I have peace and I have joy and I have my parent, you know, family and healthy, and that's what matters, you know? I've known what it is to be in a cement, a little cement room, you know, and, and live in Africa and be very basic and be very dutiful. You know, and I've seen kids living in pretty much trash pits, trash pits. You know, I've, I've seen that too. So it's kind of like, I have a need for nothing. I have surplus of everything. And yes, you know, I, I sometimes joke like, I can't with this poverty life because I really like trees and I, you know, they joke because I'm all about like the environment and living in places with more green and clean and all that. At the end of the day, really, what you want is peace, mm. you know? And, and I don't think people often understand that when you say you want a better quality of life or you want to live in a better place, it doesn't have to do with how big your house is. It doesn't have to do with how luxurious your car is. When you think about what people in our communities have to go through, mm. think about when you wake up in the morning, or if you live, you know, you live in one of the, the, the struggling neighborhoods. So from the time that I wake up in the morning, leaving the house, people are thinking about crime. People are thinking about even parking. Like, you know, if you live in an apartment building or something with a parking lot, you don't even have to worry about parking. So like, you get home from work and you have to worry about where are you going to park? You have to worry about, you know, is it going to get too dark? Because I don't want to walk home if I, have to, if I have to take the bus in the dark and I'm afraid. And, you know, I can't afford fresh fruits and vegetables and I really want to lose weight, but I can't really afford to eat really healthy. There's so many things Just that... Just like the survival. You wake up with the... Right, right, right. That intensity. Yeah, there's an intensity. I don't yeah. have a car, so I have to take the bus. So yeah. I have to run take the bus so and I don't I miss, miss it. it. And yeah. if it's packed and the bus leaves me, what am I going to do? And if I don't have a sustainable job, like a really good job where I'm working nine to five and I get to this crappy part-time job and they say, oh, you're late, you're fired. Now what am I going to do? Hmm. So we're living on the edge. And in certain communities, the social aspects of those communities affect you. And we wonder why we're so stressed and we wonder why we're so unhappy. So for me, like thinking about living better doesn't have to do with how large your place is. It has to do with those things that are going to affect your well-being, your mental health, your ability to access resources, mm. your, you know, what is available in your community. Do I feel safe? Can I wander off and feel like I'm not gonna, my house is not gonna be broken into. Do I have to live with bars on my windows? This mm. is our reality. Yeah. 
when God created Adam and Eve, where did he put them? In, in a cement building? Garden. In a garden. There's something about being in nature and in the environment that is natural and innate to us. Mm. And we live in places that are cement and man-made and unnatural. And we don't give ourselves enough time to, to do those things and to be in the wilderness and for our bodies to be active right. and to feel alive. And all of that affects us. One of the things that um, really inspires me about you, I remember, and you and I go back since we were 14 years old. We're 31 now. Happy belated birthday. Oh, my God. Thank you. Um, Good thing I don't care that you put my age out there. It's all right. I'm just kidding. I'm I really age. don't. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I'm really like 65 inside. We all I hear you. I'm like 50. We all know this. But I remember I met you when I was 14. We went to FLC together. Um, and I was hearing about, I was just, I, was, I knew you and your brother. And I'm hearing stories like, man, she's in college already in ninth grade, like 10th grade. Like, geez, like she's taking, I mean, how do I do that? And I didn't have that guidance. And I wanted to do something like that. I just didn't know how to go about it. But, um, but I remember after we graduated high school, about a year, a year or so after, you're like 20, and you're like, we're talking on the phone, and you're like, oh, I got two graduations. I was like, what you mean you got two graduations? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're supposed to graduate once. Well, while you're in high school, you're taking classes at CCP, and sometime in May, you are graduating with your associate's degree from CCP. But like a week later, you're graduating with your bachelor's from Arcadia. I mean, that's such a unique experience. Um, talk about that drive that you have. To, Should I explain how that happened? I, I mean, if you want to give some background, definitely. Okay. Because you were... Possible. You, I still promote that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're and you were what, 21 with a master's degree? 22? I just... Uh, I 21? 21 with a master's degree, yeah. yeah. Because you were 20 with a bachelor's and an associate's. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there are several schools. I actually, at Eastern University, I took a few classes on one of their offsite campuses. Um, but the bulk of the classes that I started through the dual enrollment program at CCP, which they still have, um, I started taking classes, I think, around the end of ninth grade or 10th grade. And all of those or a lot of those credits transferred over when I went to Arcadia. So I started at Arcadia University as a first year, but I was actually a second year. And then when I got to Arcadia, I started doing overload. And then I would still take classes at CCP in the summer. Um, and then I think a semester or two, I was taking classes at Arcadia and at CCP. I remember that. Um, so I, I realized that I had enough credits um, at CCP to get two associate's degrees. So I went for it. So I just kept doing overload and taking summer classes. I didn't really take much time off. Um, I was able to transfer some credits from Arcadia to CCP and some credits from CCP to Arcadia. Um, I ha I already have, when I graduated high school, I already had a year in. Yes, you did. Of, of college. And probably a little bit over a year. Um, so I was able to, to work that out. And in three years, 
I graduated from Arcadia and then and I also graduated from CCC. So Arcadia did English. I had a bachelor's in English with a minor in Spanish and then I had a liberal arts associates and a speech communication mm. associates. And it's not impossible. You know, people are like, Oh wow, you're so um oh you're so smart. No, I'm not. You know, it's not a matter of being smart. It's not a matter of being the most intelligent. I remember sitting in, in my English classes feeling like, wow, these, these some of these kids who were <laughs> not of my background, they know so much more. Like, my father wasn't sitting with me. He's the ESL. He barely speaks English. You know, he wasn't reading these kind of medieval yeah. literature with me or anything like that. So I felt let less than maybe intimidated was better i felt intimidated and but that didn't stop me feeling like i was an outlier you know feeling like i'm not as smart i may not be as good in one thing or another thing as somebody else but i'm still capable and i may not get that a plus but i will pass this class and i will submit my work and i will continue to go and i will be part of this discussion regardless of what I feel internally. So even though people were like, Nida, you're doing what? You're going to two schools? Like, you're, you're so motivated? That was me working through and beyond my own insecurities. What, the baggage that I brought, the feeling of other that I had. Because many times we get into spaces and we feel like the other. Like a lot of, and the higher up you go in concerning professionalism and in certain areas, you feel like there are not many of you out there. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's not that you're better than anyone. It's that you're more willing to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Flip over to part two of this awesome interview with Nida. God bless.